it was more instructive and probably left greater imprint on me and certainly lessons learned seeing the bust rather than the bubble because in a bubble and in a bull market, everyone's a genius. I love the diversity of industry here, of backgrounds, of experiences, of cultures. I think that does mean that we have an opportunity in the UK to create propositions and services that'll be more relatable and resonate with more people than those coming out of Silicon Valley. We will know that we've reached gender parity when we've got as many mediocre women in jobs as we have mediocre men. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and a destination for all things UK tech related. And this week, I'm joined by Eileen Burbage, a veteran of the tech industry, founder of Passion Capital and director of Fertiva, a workplace platform for women's reproductive health. Welcome, Eileen. Hi there, Jane. Thank you for having me. I hope you don't mind me calling you a veteran of the tech industry. I don't mind. We'll just say that I started when I was very, very, very young. (laughs) (laughs) What I mean by that is that you've seen a lot of change and you've worked at a lot of different companies and you've had your fingers in a lot of tech pies, as it were. So we're going to try and unpick some of that now. Should we start with your time at Apple and Silicon Valley. Let's talk a little bit about that, what it was like to kind of get involved in the tech scene in the kind of very early days, both of Apple and and Silicon Valley, I guess. Yeah, that was a long time ago. So what, 1995? No, yeah, 1995 is when I joined Apple. It was in the period of the between Steve Jobs stints. So I'll just get that out there in case some people are like, oh, that's going to be boring then. But um, I had been moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, actually, with the telecommunications company. And so I was doing things in telecoms and was in the Bay Area and thought, oh, hang on. I think there's this company, Apple, that's here. I think it's a company called Intel, Silicon Graphics and the like. And sort of I knew that there were these tech companies. And I don't even think I referred to it as Silicon Valley at that time. I'm sure maybe others were. And I just thought, how cool would it be? to work at these companies that are almost sort of based on the premise that computers will be the future, you know, because it wasn't necessarily the case that everyone was going to have a laptop even in those days. I remember we had them at the telecoms company I was working at, but they were quite industrial sized laptops, didn't bring them back and forth, you know, from the office to home, you know, you'd have huge screens when you open them up and things. And so it wasn't the case that you'd have at every home printers were industrial sized as big as refrigerators, you know what I mean? And so thinking about this sector that was predicated on the notion that personal computing would be a thing, that's what we called the category, I thought was really fascinating. And so when I joined Apple, I thought I was incredibly lucky. Everyone had computers, there were printers, you know, several on each floor. That was kind of the measure of how immersed they were in tech. And we were working on, you know, things before there was the World Wide Web, 
Uh, we we're working with modems. We we're working with the idea that people could send each other messages, but it'd be for very techie people. And then, you know, while I was there, I just think I was really lucky to witness what we all know, you know, now has happened, which obviously the internet took over the world and it just became part of everyday life. And I, I feel lucky to have witnessed that. And was it exciting to be part of that in the early days of Silicon Valley? Were you kind of aware that you were part of something that was going to kind of really shape the future of all our lives? It was thrilling. It was exhilarating. It was a lot of fun. And it was certainly the type of work or the things that we were talking about and planning and trying to, I guess, promote or amplify. And this was my job title at Apple, you know, evangelize. It was certainly, you know, genuinely interesting. And what I think we probably didn't realize at the time was just how much of a common thing it would be, just how sort of normal it would be, almost, you know, like battery power is today, or, you know, the internet access, Wi-Fi, those things I don't think we appreciated. I remember having a conversation with a colleague thinking about how we might be able to get the equivalent of, I guess, data sheets or information about a company and looking for something from IBM. And I remember saying, oh, but we don't know their website address yet. And I remember the colleague said, I bet you it's just going to be IBM.com. So it wasn't even you know, a given that it would so obviously be every company would just register themselves because at that time you had, you know, file transfer protocol servers, FTP servers, and you'd have to know a specific website address in order to go find information. And so, yeah, I, I, I think I thought it was exciting, but I also thought that was the case, even if this stayed a certain niche or a segment or still kind of power users or specifically technology users, didn't realize it would become so everyday and that would become for everybody, you know, that would just be so ubiquitous for for literally, you know, everyone. And of course, you must have been there when the dot-com bubble burst, which was, you know, right back in the early days, everything was overhyped and then suddenly it had all kind of imploded. What, what was that like? Was that chaotic? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I should say, and maybe this is what you're getting at. So I'm sorry, I'm such a terrible listener in these conversations. But in terms of being at Apple and then continuing to work in Silicon Valley for the years subsequent, the pace of change was unbelievable because we went from that conversation of, oh, well, IBM's website address be IBM.com to, uh, you know, not even three years later. And you had Java and I was working at Sun Microsystems and the network is the computer was that slogan. And you know, it was clearly pervasive almost overnight, really, if you think about how quickly that happened. And then I worked on, you know, mobile technology and and such. And you're right. I was there for 10 years. So I was there for pretty much all of the dot-com boom, but I was there for the last year and a half, two years of the dot-com bust, right? Because I left and moved to London in 2004. And I do think it was more instructive and probably left greater imprint on me and certainly lessons learned seeing the bust rather than the bubble, because in a bubble and in a bull market, everyone's a genius and everyone's clever and everyone's doing the right things because the rising tide lifted all boats. You know what I mean? And, and it was it was not necessarily as obvious to discern, you know, who was doing great work versus benefiting from the market. And it was the dot-com bust, which is going to sound so naive now, but you saw that, oh, you know, some of the hardest working people who are also the most intelligent, sort of, you know, a combination of both of those criteria ended up not being successful. You know, it didn't work. The company 
didn't succeed or even last. And so it was a very stark realization that luck played such a big role, such, such a big role. And that for me has been a really sort of life-shaping kind of understanding. And again, I, I recognize it's probably very naive for me to be, you know, mid-20s before I worked that out or even close to 30. But yeah, it was the bus that really helped me sort of recognize what's really important, what really factors into success and what can make a difference, what creates impact, what creates value, how to define value, how to think about time horizons and long-lasting value and things like that. So what are those lessons? Because you say, you know, on the one hand, it seemed to be a great deal of luck, but obviously there were some companies that presumably weathered the storm because their product and their people were just good enough that it wasn't dependent on financial situations. Yes, that's true. So I do think luck is still a big, big ingredient. I also, though, think some of the luckiest people, uh, you know, I, I think it's no accident that some of them are really hardworking and some of the hardest working people I've met end up being quite lucky. And, you know, people can make or um, condition themselves to recognize opportunities that end up being quite lucky. So I do think they go hand in hand. Having said that, you're absolutely right. There's also a learning, which is it's all about the team and it's all about the people, because as we've clearly recognized now, you can have lots of different groups of people come up with very similar ideas or look to design solutions for the same problem. And one of them will be an outstanding success and the others will fail. And it is about execution, delivery, collaboration between that team, the skills they bring to the table, then how they actually add to it bring other skills in, how they complement one each other, one another, how they go about delivery, planning, strategy, raising money or not, you know, capital and investment. So it is all about the team. It's all about the people at the end of the day. HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about your move to London because I guess not just culturally there was a big change, but also you saw a very big change in the way that tech was done here compared to the Valley. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. So I think there's actually two changes or periods of evolution I've witnessed. One was coming from Silicon Valley to London in 2004, and then the other would be subsequent to that. So the 20 years or near 20 years that I've been in London since, and I think both are, are changes that are significant. So the first one coming from Silicon Valley, yeah, it was a very stark change, but I think I was at a place in my life where I welcomed it. I I liked not being in a in a metropolitan area where 100% of the conversation was about tech and where you would queue at your local cafe or coffee shop and you could guarantee that everyone in front of you and everyone behind you would work at a tech company. That was just a given. You know, so if you'd have a conversation with a friend and you would just know the person in front of you could work for Google or Meta or Facebook at the time or, you know, a, a Yahoo or something like that. And you just, you could then have conversations where you'd skip a lot of the, you know, you'd go straight into, I was meeting with my PM yesterday or I was talking to the debt, you know, you'd go straight into the parlance and the, the conversation, no matter where you were and who you were talking to. And it was a relief actually to come to London 
and realized that if I said I worked in tech, that meant nothing to almost everybody here. And the only people that might ask or take a passing interest, say, as taxi or cab driver or something, you know, what do you do? And I'd say tech, and that wouldn't mean anything, but I'd say I worked in IT, and that would mean something or another. And they'd say, you know, I have this big problem with my internet connection and that kind of thing. And I was looking for that. And I I had left Silicon Valley intentionally, although thinking it was only going to be a year or two. So I did think it would be temporary, but I intentionally sought to leave the Valley because I thought it was a bit too insular. When I left, I was working at Palm Source. Palm was a predecessor to, I don't know, BlackBerry and to the iPhone today, really. It was meant to be a smartphone with an operating system inside. So you could do apps on a phone or a mobile device. And we had at that company licensees, including Samsung, you know, the third largest phone manufacturer in the world at the time, Lenovo. But we also had Handspring, which was another Silicon Valley startup there. We would have fossil watches. And I would see that even though we were working with the world's third largest phone set manufacturer, we didn't prioritize them over a startup that was right around the corner where, you know, mates were working or friends were working or, or old colleagues. And so I felt that in Silicon Valley, we just did a lot of echo chamber you know, thinking that we were our own target market and not necessarily thinking about the real world, frankly, or mass market adoption. And so I wanted to come out of that. I was really pleased to get that in London. I love the diversity of industry here, of backgrounds, of experiences, um, of cultures. I think that does mean that we have an opportunity in the UK to create propositions and services that'll be uh, more relatable and resonate with more people than those coming out of Silicon Valley. Whether or not we can execute it on it then is a different question, but I do think we have that opportunity more so than those coming from Silicon Valley. So I thought it was a breath of fresh air and it's exactly what I was looking for, but it certainly made it somewhat difficult or more challenging to build up a team. And so, you know, I was tasked in in the year, year and a half that I was at Skype to sort of build up the product marketing or product development or product function. And when we first started doing that, the team was generous and, you know, work with all the headhunters or recruiters that you need. And I think we're at one point, we had three of them appointed or engaged. And for them to find a product manager, though, that title, software product manager, did not exist in 2004 and in London. The closest we were getting were CVs for individuals who had done the product and speech marks of the bundle that you could get from a T-Mobile store that had a USB cord and a SIM card and a phone or something like that. That was a product manager. And so, yeah, it was, you know, we didn't have terms like UX designer, you know, we didn't differentiate between backend, frontend engineers. Uh, there were, it was, it was just early days, really early days. And I think it was, I think I remember thinking it was five to 10 years behind the Silicon Valley sort of life cycle in terms of the tech sector, maybe three to five years behind the East Coast, New York City sort of tech ecosystem. And obviously we've closed that gap completely now, but at the time, that's where I felt it we were. Yeah, you, you say we've closed that gap and I guess that is true, but actually when you look at UK tech investment, it's not really doing that well. I think UKTM reported that year on year, it had fallen by 57% UK tech investment in the first half of this year. Is that just because we're in this general economic downturn? Is that the fault of Brexit? Or is there something else that the UK is doing wrong that it's just not attracting investment? I mean, obviously, Arm, which was a, a British company that's listed in the US. So 
it doesn't seem like perhaps that's going as well as, as it should. Yeah, I think there's a few things in there. And on the investment side, in terms of funding or sort of investment capital that goes into startups, I think you're right. We haven't closed the gap. And I, sh- I probably, I shouldn't have suggested that that gap was closed. I was more thinking about talent, skills, you know, the vocabulary, the uh, methodology, the processes, the expectations for teams, uh, for companies and things like that. But in terms of investment capital and financing, no, you're right. We haven't closed the gap. We still don't have as much investment coming into the UK as the US sees, of course, but, you know, we're a smaller market. And so it's probably a, a, a more fair comparison to compare maybe all of the investment going to the UK and Europe versus United States or something like that. Even so, in certain sectors, we have closed the gap. So for example, in fintech, there was a period where the UK fintech sector attracted more investment capital than any other regional fintech sector in the world. But on the whole, of course, you're right. We don't attract quite as much capital. We were closing the gap. So the gap has been narrowing, but we've never quite gotten there to the same level. And I, again, I don't know that we we should match the, the US entirely, given the different size of the populations. And then on the exit side, you mentioned ARM, for example, as a listing, and I guess as a reflection of appetite for maybe institutional investors coming into public markets. And you're right, that that gap is not closed yet either. But again, where I think we've narrowed the gap, right? I think we've taken some good strides. You know, you've seen WISE, which was was called TransferWise when it started, do a direct listing on LSE. Um, and so you'll see that it's not, you know, it, there are instances of it. There'll be reasons why I think some groups, some shareholders will feel like they would rather list in the US versus the UK or potentially do a dual listing or otherwise. But, you know, hopefully we'll continue on this trend of closing the gap and narrowing it as we go. I was at an event last week organized by an organization called Boardway, which is determined to try and make European software compete with the US. And one of the suggestions there was that what needed to happen was we needed to have a sort of pan-European NASDAQ, effectively, something that could compete with the US. Is that something that you would advocate? I mean, I don't know that that would hurt. I don't, I'm not sure that that's the reason. I don't know that having another exchange, even though there has been consolidation in the market, I don't know that that moves the needle. I, I do think with the original kind of the way the question, we have had, you know, world impacting software companies, you know, SAP, for example, is a great example and one of the largest software companies in the world and, you know, obviously is European. So, so I think the the sense that we're, we've always been playing catch up is not quite true. Is there more to do? Yes, for sure. And could we be even more competitive? Yes. But I don't want people listening to think, oh, it's always been, you know, such an imbalanced or dire situation necessarily. I mean, I'm an investor, right? So I would actually say to me, I read this as massive opportunity. You know, we have category leaders for certain types of businesses in the US and they're not yet established here. Why would we not try and build those here? You know, that kind of thing. And and that will lead into hopefully something we'll get to talk about a little bit later, which is for Tifa, as you mentioned, I'm working on as well. I mean, you mentioned there that you're an investor. Actually, you've been described as the queen of British venture capital. <laughs> I have to admit that was a long time ago. I think if we're <laughs> honest, that was some years on now. I- I'm sure you still wear that crown. But, you know, as somebody that's very heavily involved in this, are you seeing that those challenging funding conditions for startups are starting to change, that things are getting better? And if so, are there particular sectors, you mentioned fintech, that are, are kind of getting more cash 
And what do you see as being sort of the general outlook for next year? If we take it from a starting point of 2004, when I first got here, or even up through 2015, I would say, yes, things were improving and actually looking really good. I do think we have slowed down here in the UK from investment point of view because of a combination of Brexit, COVID, the pandemic, and just general now the macroeconomic climate is is not very sunny. So, you know, the overall market is dampened. And so we're seeing the same thing. It's actually, I think, a very difficult time for companies to raise now as compared to any point in the last three to four years. And from an absolute basis, probably as difficult as it might have been, you know, back in anywhere from 2009 to 2012-ish, I would have thought. So it's been, I think it's tough right now. I'm hopeful that at this point in 2024, so October 2024, it'll be better. Will it be better by January, May, June, or August? I I don't know when next year, but I, I would like to think that within the next 12 months, we come out of what's what's currently quite a dampened macro situation. And what is it that you're looking for when you're looking to invest in a tech firm? Is it the people? Is it the ideas? Is it a combination of, of both? Is it taking big risks or looking at something that feels like a safe bet? What would your tips be? Yeah, it is a it is a combination of all of the above, but I, I have the luxury of being an early stage investor. I, I say luxury, but that also means that there's very little to diligence. You know, I I won't have X number of years of accounts. I won't have trading history. I won't have, you know, uh, the ability to measure consistency or, you know, on-time deliverables. And so all I have is the team. So at Passion, we invest pre-revenue, certainly pre-product, often pre-product market fit or before uh, companies establish that people actually need what they're building. And so we are just investing in the team and that co-founding team and sort of deciding or determining based on the market they are addressing. So to one of your other points, you know, the solution and what they're doing, they either already know or are going to be able to find out and are going to be able to execute and make decisions better than almost anyone else that you could find at trying to solve this problem. That's the bet we we try and take. And I remember now your previous question was about, are there particular sectors that are, you know, either uh, particularly appealing here in the UK or maybe that I might look at? And so we have that passion capital again, I think due to luck and just by virtue of being in the UK at the time that we were, we've done a lot of fintech. And so we have done a lot of technology as it relates to financial services. I still think there's much to be done in that in for the first few years of, of fintech, if you want to call it a category like that, a lot of work was done on sort of customer facing propositions. I'd mentioned Wise already earlier in this call, we're big investors in Monzo Bank. You saw a lot of remittances, businesses, money transfer, payments, for example, things that directly touched consumers. And then I think there's still a great opportunity in fintech for then sort of behind the scenes, under the table, or, you know, the, the way the plumbing works. So, you know, yes, we've we've changed how or improved how one can do remittances or one can do money transfers or even personal banking. Oh, how are the banks doing their KYC? How are they managing their fin crime? How are they managing their operations, for example? And so there's a lot more, I think, to come in fintech. I'm personally now, maybe because of my different experiences and personal journeys, I'm really interested in how technology can enable better outcomes in healthcare, particularly, you know, as it relates to female health, which actually I think if it affects women and all of us were born of a woman, it really affects all of us. Um, But it's just been so 
traditionally underinvested in that I feel like there's so much opportunity there. And then in in just general other categories where I think there is a lot to be solved and problems that maybe historically investors weren't quite attuned to because we've been in our own type of echo chamber. And I've talked about the Silicon Valley echo chamber before, but you know, investors always fall into an echo chamber of their own as well too. So I feel like trying to broaden the net of what people are looking to solve either for themselves, for their friends, their family, uh, and finding um, which of those businesses could benefit from investment finance is is really what I'd like to do. So you mentioned healthcare there. Let's talk a little bit about your role as director at Fertiva. What, what, what is the company? What is it trying to achieve? So y- you gave a really great introduction, but I would sort of correct that. We're not just thinking about women's reproductive health. So we're thinking about reproductive health more broadly. And as you had said, we are a, a benefits provider. So we sell to corporates and workplaces, well-being support and navigational advice for their employees to use for all of reproductive, hormonal, and sexual health. And that's a mouthful I know. So really it's it's centered around you know three different areas and the key areas are fertility, family planning. So the most common would be egg freezing, sperm freezing, IVF, for example, or second category would be all of sort of women's reproductive, hormonal, sexual health. And a lot of people are leading that conversation today, thinking about menopause and how that's affecting workplaces. And then the third is men's reproductive, hormonal, and sexual health. You know, unfortunately, one in eight men in the UK are going to be diagnosed with prostate cancer at some point in their lives. 25% of working age men in the UK today will die of a health-related issue before their age of retirement, which really means for those one out of every four working age men, reproductive hormonal sexual health is more important to them than their pension because they won't live long enough to collect it. So all these issues we think are under have been underinvested and are not really delivered or provided for by private medical insurance. We have a fantastic system in the NHS, but unfortunately it's able to support less and less and there are longer and longer wait times. And so as employers now recognize the duty of care for employee well-being, our sort of hypothesis at Fatifa is that this category is one that is not being addressed by anybody. And employers are looking to deliver well-being support for this for their workforce to get a more productive workforce and to support their employees more. It's a really interesting idea. We've all been thinking about our life work balance during COVID. Lots of people are struggling with the idea that they should go back to work at all or go back to the office for, you know, who liked working from home. Do you think that, you know, COVID has changed the way that employers have to kind of look after their staff and that, you know, people are now going to expect that everything that's involved in their life is is part of their working environment too. It seems like a healthy balance, right? I think so. I mean, I, I think certainly there was more that could be done than we were doing before COVID. So I 100% believe COVID has changed the working relationship between employers and employees and the expectations that employees have. You, you actually phrased the question, do they have to change? I mean, an employer doesn't have to change. And I think we will hear from time to time about employers that are not wanting to change or resistant to change and then what employees are thinking about that. And I think employees will just, you know, they'll show what they think of that based on where they go to work. So I think it behooves employers to change and to adapt and to be more supportive and to be more mindful of employee well-being. And we know, for example, that 70% of millennials would change jobs for a company that offered fertility benefits, for example. And whether they're seeing that as a reflection of how the company feels about its responsibility to employees, or they're specifically looking for fertility support 
you know, I, I can't say, but it's clearly making a difference. And what we're talking about, kind of the work environment, one of my favorite headlines when I was doing a bit of research on you was something in the Telegraph from 2018, which said that uh, you felt we should stamp out mediocre men at work. Is that headline, was that a fair representation of you at the time? And is is that still something that you believe we, we, we need to do and is still a problem? I do think that headline was a bit clickbaity, but I didn't mind it because if it started the conversation and if it got people thinking about why on earth would she say something like that, then I don't mind. But I mean, I obviously didn't mean that we needed to, you know, eradicate any type of cohort of uh, uh, sort of population or employee. My point was, you know, and I think someone else has probably phrased it much more elegantly, and I've heard it said before, and I'll probably mess it up. But, you know, we will know that we've reached gender parity when we've got as many mediocre women in jobs as we have mediocre men. And right now, we know that there's a lot of mediocre men who are filling a lot of seats and doing a lot of jobs and roles that are not available to mediocre women, right? And there's a higher bar. There's so many different things wrapped up in that. So I kind of agree with the underlying sentiment of it. Of course, I think everyone has value in the work that they do if they're committed to their work. And I don't want to stamp anybody out. But my point was, there's a lot of space that needs to be made for women. And I do genuinely believe that. And I'm probably even more vocal about that, probably very frustratingly and irritatingly to people than I was uh, back then, because it's something I probably get, yeah, even more and more passionate about as I get older and older and just witness more and more and feel perhaps just more secure or comfortable in my own roles and in my platform to be able to call it out. Because I also remember when I was much younger, when I was in Silicon Valley, and also when I first came here to London, I probably didn't call out enough, you know, because I needed to keep my head down and sort of prove my worth and try and get to a place where I felt more secure and comfortable. But now that I am fortunate enough to feel that way, I don't hesitate to call it out. Well, I thought it was a great headline and it's an issue that we keep coming back to on this podcast, one that we hopefully will not solve, but get some good answers on as we go through the series. But that, I'm afraid, is all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTN podcast. Thanks, Eileen, for a really, really excellent chat. Uh, Fascinating to talk to you. Thank you also to everyone who is listening in. And remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter, where you can also find me at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. But until next time, it's goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb to find out how innovation needs different. 